Welcome back, everyone. I'm Sarah Peck, and this is the Startup Pregnant Podcast. A friend of mine reached out a few weeks after she gave birth to her second baby girl, and she said, I need to tell you my birth story. Well, absolutely. I said, let's do it. What do you want to talk about? Today, we get to hear Tanya Burl Torres share her story on our show. Tanya is an actress, a dancer, and a choreographer who spent a decade in a career on Broadway, performing in shows like The Lion King, On the Town, West Side Story, and many more. With her first baby, she was on Broadway throughout her pregnancy and back in the show not long after giving birth. Today, she has a creative practice as a yoga and meditation teacher, which is how I met her. And she also works as a director and the founder of So Humanity, an organization dedicated to embodying, facilitating, and bringing out change across individuals and organizations. In this interview, which we recorded with her seven-week-old at home. She shares her background as a performer and a dancer and what it was like to have a baby while working on Broadway. And don't worry, we took a break in the middle of recording so that she could grab water and use the bathroom and do what she needed. But I've stitched this episode together so you won't hear the breaks and it sounds like one long episode. She is a phenomenal storyteller and I am also just so amazed by her ability to function at seven weeks postpartum and she talks about what it's like to advocate for yourself and what you need. And we have a really important conversation about how the institutions around us affect us and how to do that important work that is listening into what you need and finding the right people to help support you in your birth, your business, or your life. Welcome to the Startup Pregnant Podcast, where we talk to creative leaders about what it means to be an entrepreneur and a parent. I'm your host, Sarah K. Peck. Before we begin this episode, a heads up to everyone that the Wise Women's Council is now here. For those of you that have been waiting to hear about the Mastermind, it is now open and we are accepting applications until the middle of February. As you know, if you've been a longtime listener of this podcast, every year we gather a group of women together for nine months to learn from each other, to go deep, and to meet regularly for advice, for wisdom, and for sharing with each other around the journeys of parenting, business, and entrepreneurship. Applications are open right now, and we will close up applications in mid-February. Get your application in early to be considered on a first-come, first-served basis. We already have filled half of the spots in this community, and we're looking for the rest of the class. Don't wait until the last minute. Here are my two cents for getting applications in. Done is always better than perfect when it comes to applying. Don't worry about having a perfect application. Just get something in and go to startuppregnant.com slash WWC. That's for the Wise Women's Council. Get all the details and fill out your application. I also learn so much just by filling out application and it puts my brain into a better mindset when I am applying to different residencies or programs. Just the connections and the thoughtfulness of the questions and having to reflect can be a really useful process. So go fill it out. Do it. See what happens. 
And if you are one of my longtime listeners finding this podcast in the future, and it's no longer February, first of all, congratulations, it's not winter anymore. And second, if you are interested in our annual mastermind program, go to startuppregnant.com, get on the email list so that I can email you when applications open up again. We also teach master classes and we have lots of mini books and goodies on our website. So get on our email list. And for those of you that want to join the mastermind this year, go over to startuppregnant.com slash WWC so that you can apply. I can't wait to see you and meet you if you are applying to join our community. Now let's get on to today's episode. Everyone, I'm so excited to have Tanya join us on the show. Tanya, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So you are right in the midst of being postpartum. Can you tell us how old your little one is and how today is going? What's today been like? Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for asking because it is day by day, isn't it? Yeah. So Dahlia is seven weeks old and today has been a great day. She nursed at around 6 a.m. and then went back to sleep for another two hours or so. And then I got to get up, get my other little one who's not so little anymore, six years old, off to school. And then folded some laundry while she took another nap. And then we went on a nice walk in the park with the dog, actually met a yoga friend who was sitting on a bench, had a great conversation, came back, made a smoothie, and I'm here with you. This is amazing. I, <laughs> I would be so tired. Are you, you know, sleep-wise? Yeah, I'm tired. I do feel like I have to get out in nature at some point in my day that rejuvenates me. So Doing that in the morning actually helps me more than anything than staying in my pajamas all day with the baby. So tired-wise, yeah, I'm exhausted all the time. But those little moments of getting out in nature, connecting, it does help me. It helps with, with the sleep deprivation. Yes. And having that other child, I don't know about you, but for me, realizing that the older child was always going to wake up every day and need a parent, I was like, wait a second. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> it's hard. Exactly right. It's hard. And I think... What's kind of cool now that we are, <laughs> we're like two and two now with adults to child ratio. My husband's been amazing at getting up, getting my older daughter fully ready for school. And then I saunter out with the baby and do the end together. But it's turned into this really cool little ritual. She hangs out with her little sister for a few minutes before going off to school. But it is nice to know, yeah, the older child is going to wake up early because mine's an early riser. And that just is what it is. It's just kind of turned into it is what it is. It's like the patterning of the minutia yeah. of it. Yeah. Yes. So I want to stretch sideways a little bit because I don't know if I could have answered these questions when I was seven weeks postpartum. I want to ask you to give us a little context and tell us, you know, stretch back into the recesses of your brain and tell us about your work life, your career. Mm. And where were you many years ago? Like, where did you go to school and what did you study and how did that turn into the next thing and the next thing? Yeah. Awesome. So career, if I reach all the way back, I reach back to the suburbs of Toronto, Canada, <laughs> where I grew up and dance has been a part of my life since about seven years old a very intense part of my life. So dancing recreationally, I also went to a performing arts high school for dance. And then the day after graduating high school, I had, I had a bunch of offers for some scholarships to different universities for dance. 
I just said to my mom, I don't know why, but I don't want to go to school for this. I just want to do it. And I remember her saying to me, the second you're sitting on a couch somewhere, you're getting your butt in school, but sure, try it. And I had won this, which is funny with dance. I'd won this like dance convention scholarship, which awarded me a job on a cruise ship. (laughs) And so the day after high school, I left for LA and I boarded a ship, cruise ship and made some money so I could move to New York. And so my official post-secondary education was life (laughs) and was also Alvin Ailey School here in New York. And I was there training very intensely in dance, again, modern dance this time, modern in ballet and jazz on the side. And then I had auditioned for The Lion King very young at 18, 17 or 18 years old. And I got the job. Uh, on tour. And I went from being a very struggling, struggling student, you know, living in the recesses of Brooklyn, traveling all the way into Manhattan to take class every day to being one of the top tours in the country. And I toured the country with the Lion King for four years. I met my husband there. He was a percussionist, still is. He still plays from time to time on Broadway. And that started, jumpstarted my career as a musical theater dancer, singer, actress, performer, So yeah, that's how it started. And if I just jump forward, the next 10 years of my life has been performing on Broadway and mainly here in New York City. So doing off-Broadway and Broadway productions and doing some pretty incredible shows with some really incredible people. So I would say I've had a full life and a full career all before the age of 30. (laughs) Oh yeah. That was like 18 to 30. And then... 2930 is when I had Noemi, I had my first daughter, Noemi. And from then is when I was doing double duty. I mean, I gave birth, I was pregnant on stage with Noemi my entire pregnancy in a play on Cat on the Hot Tin Roof on Broadway. And then had her five weeks later, I was back on stage. Wow. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was ridiculous. I just was so incredibly ambitious and it served me so much up until a point, up until motherhood, basically. <laughs> And then I crashed and burnt out. And it, yeah. 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 I was going to ask, how did the idea of thinking about parenting, was this something that you, it was thought out? Or did it just come up? Like, yeah. how, how did it intersect with your career? So it's interesting. So everything in my career, as you can tell so far with my story, like everything is me just wanting to try something out and figure it out as I go. That's my personality. I don't necessarily need to feel like I've mastered something before I try something. (laughs) And so the same was with motherhood (laughs) is going back a few years. I met my husband. We, he had left tour to come and start in the Heights on Broadway. And I had left tour to come and be with him here in New York. And, you know, we were engaged at the time. And we were talking about kids and I said, you know what, maybe once I've done three Broadway shows, because it's like hard as hell to get on Broadway. So I figured that'll buy me at least, I don't know, five, six years. I ended up doing three shows in like a year and a half. <laughs> <laughs> Careful what you put out, put out Careful there. Careful what you put out there. And I was like, Ugh. and he was like, remember that three show promise? And I was like, ah. Um, <laughs> Now, when I think back on it, it's crazy, but it also takes that kind of crazy ambition drive to make it here in this crazy town where like 2% of people who come to New York to be performers actually work as a profession, (laughs) as their like main career. And so like that kind of drive. And I just thought, 
well, if I could do that, then I could do this. I can have a kid. I can still do that. I can do it. Well, it just like, I feel like I loved being pregnant. I always, I love being pregnant, but having Noemi, it literally knocked me on my ass. It was so hard for me. And I had to learn a lesson on slowing down, on balance, on burnout, on all of those things that I thought I could just master and keep going and keep doing. Hmm. What was it? Like, what was it about it that stands out to you the most? You know what? Now when I think about it, it was... So presence like on stage, stage presence, I had that. When I was on stage, I was in the moment. But I always said like, performing isn't the job. The job is the hustle around it. It's like the auditioning and the balancing, you know, auditions and this and being all these places and keeping your body in check. So being a multitasker was my superpower. Mm -hmm. And as a mother, what it called for me to be was like so incredibly present in one moment at a time that I didn't know how to do that in my life. I knew how to do that on stage. I never had ever been present. I don't think, maybe that's being kind of hard on myself, but in my life and to have this little being demanding presence from me right out of the womb, I was like, I cannot handle this. And all the time, like I can't handle this. And it really tore at my identity of who I thought I was and how I thought I had things together. Like it just, it unraveled me in that way. I think it was the presence piece. Yeah. That's so interesting. You say things that resonate so strongly with me because I think the pull, the the call of entrepreneurship for so many people is that they get to call all the shots or do what they want. And it's the hustle around the hustle is so real. Yeah. Like the marketing, the communications, the website, the logistics, the hiring, the conversation. Like there's, I think you're lucky if you get to do 20 or 30% of your time doing the thing that you actually want to be doing. That's exactly right. Yeah. And so it's interesting to hear you say that about the theater too. Yeah. And I say that because it gets so glamorized. So like you'll be at a stage door and someone will say, aren't you so, um, you're so lucky to do what you love to do. And it's like, I do get to do what I love to do, but it is 20% of the time because the other part of the time I'm unemployed and auditioning and you don't get paid for that. (laughs) Like, you know what I mean? Like, but no one thinks about that. They see the high moment, but the high, it only lasts so long. So you're right. It's like the hustle. You have to be so good at hustling. So true. Yeah. And, the, and then motherhood, there's just the, the, I've heard so many people talk about how it just completely unseats you. Yep. And it threatens your identity because you, you're mourning the, the loss of a past self. What happened when you play out the next couple of years of your career? Did you stay on Broadway? Did you shift focus? Mm-hmm. What did that look like? Yeah, that's awesome. So one of the great things that came from my undoing, the image that I usually use is, you know, what, what kind of brought me to therapy for the first time in this <laughs> of many times. But the first time was I told my therapist that it was like, I'm not driving the car in the driver's seat. I'm not in the passenger seat. I'm not even in the back seat. I'm holding on to the bumper with my nails and the car is dragging me. That's what I felt like. And oh. she was like, Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. That okay. That's definitely burnout. So it looked like a lot of ways. It looked like me not being my fullest self on stage, which at first I was saying, I'm a mom. I have a taught at this point, you know, I was in a, a really successful Broadway show, dance probably the hardest dance show I've ever done with a toddler. And I just thought, you know what, I'm asking too much of myself. But I noticed my passion was starting to leak out. Like I didn't want to be on stage. If that was the reward, if like the hustle was the hustle and stage was the reward, and I didn't even want to be on stage, then there's an issue with that. I didn't want to be on stage. I was turning down auditions all the time. I was doing the math a lot more of 
wait, I'm basically taking home grocery money after I pay a sitter. Like it was becoming more about the money ever than before. Like, you know, and not that it's not about the money, but I, I just, the passion was starting to leak out. And then another thing that happened that I think is a bonus is that having this little girl and this little black girl particularly was having me question my identity as a black woman on stage. And I was realizing I'd been tokenized a lot of my career in theater and on Broadway. And I had seen it as, oh, I'm special. And then I started to be like, no, something's up with this. And then be like, what if this was my daughter? Like it gives you that perspective when you're seeing this little kid coming up. And I just thought, I don't want to be the token black girl on stage telling stories that I don't necessarily fully believe in anymore. I've got a little black girl of my own to raise. It's not worth it anymore to me. I've done enough to be like, I don't need the credits to make me feel like I'm successful. If I'm going to stay in this business, I want to tell stories that represent who I am, who my daughter is, and that would make her proud. Mm. And so how did you make that happen or find it? What did you have to do to head in that direction? Yeah. So I think what's interesting for me, especially with like my spiritual practice, and at the same time, I had met my mentor and really amazing friend, Johanna Bell, a yoga teacher and shaman and amazing woman. She was helping me to see kind of the, what I call like the undersides of yoga, not the like love and light side, but the kind of the dark shadow side of myself and of my spirituality and of my practice and how when you start to explore there, things come up, things that are painful, but also things that are really beautiful. And something that was coming out of that work that I was doing with her and just kind of being in her presence was that because I was asking these questions of myself, or maybe it's that my eyes just weren't open to them before, but opportunities started to come up. So somebody reached out to me who was starting an activist orchestra and wanted to honor Leonard Bernstein, who wrote the music for On the Town, which was the show that I was doing at the time. And I was the only woman of color in the show. And she wanted me to speak on his legacy of being an advocate for people of color in theater. And, you know, he had done all this stuff during the civil rights movement and was at in Selma playing the piano for Nina Simone, which I had no idea. But anyway, I went to the performing arts library and just read about him and was like, oh my God, this is the kind of work I want to do in theater. Like, I had no idea people were doing this. Like, so I spoke at this event, at this opening event. Eric Garner's daughter also spoke with me. She's now since passed, but it was the one year anniversary of Eric Garner's death. And it was the first time in my life, social justice, art, theater, music, dance, everything was all in one. And I was like, this is me. Like, this is what I've been trying to unravel and unfold. And so from that moment, I, I never looked back. I, I told my agents, I'm not taking stuff that I don't believe in. They dropped me very soon after, <laughs> mm. after years of making them a lot of money. But it just, it starts to show you, you know, where the roots really are. And I just started to put it out there, things that I was passionate about and started working more for nonprofit theaters, like the public theater, the signature theater, all doing works in justice and art. And opportunities just kept opening. I, I don't know how else to say it, but maybe it's because I was speaking out more clearly on, social, on my social media platform about it. And then people who knew me in the, in the theater were saying, oh, we had no idea you were passionate about this. Here's an opportunity for you. Mm. Um, I think I started to use my voice more. I decided to use social media very um, intentionally in what I had to say and not be quiet about what I had to say, but also be very discerning about what I had to say. Because I did that, 
the followers were, were few. I don't have a crazy amount of followers, but the people who were listening were very excited to present opportunities to me. This is so interesting because this is the side of like the law of attraction and the mm-hmm. secret and manifestation. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting because there is science to show if you prime someone and you say like, tell me all the things that are the color red, you'll go outside and you'll see stop signs and red cars and red lights because you have like pre-programmed your brain. The the shadow sign of yes. manifestation is it's real easy for a white person to be like, I'd like a hundred thousand dollars and get that <laughs> That's from right. ancestors who have that kind of money. So That's like, right. But it's it's not all or nothing. So you're telling this story. I'm getting the chills of this really interesting side of saying, I think my eyes were primed and open to seeing all these things and the possibilities came. Yeah. Thank you for hearing that and seeing that because I think that is the ability I think that people of color, we have, but we have to go to that shadow side, to that darker side. But what happens when what's white-centered and white-normative is presented to us, we think that we can just see it on the surface with our eyes like like white people can. And for us, there is this level of of having to go down. I keep, if you could see my hands, I'm like, like I'm carving <laughs> down and into beneath the tree. And that's what Johanna helped me to see at the grad, at the end of my 200 hour training with her. She asked us what our superpower was. And I didn't have a word, but I had this motion of like grabbing something up from the sky and pulling it down into the ground. And she said to me, you're a vision manifested. And I had to live my way into that. I didn't even know what that meant, but just the whole idea of manifestation is earth is on the earthly plane and below. It's like the down stuff. It's the underground stuff uh, is where I think a lot of the information is, is waiting for us to, to take it, but it's down there and we have to go down there. Yes. To mm-hmm. see something and then to create it and to make mm-hmm. it real. Mm-hmm. Wow. Cause there's, there's so much beauty. I'm sorry. Now I'm just pontificating instead of asking <laughs> yeah. you questions. No, keep, let's go. <laughs> there's so much beauty in, the seers, the people who can see a world that doesn't exist yet. Yes. And call it forward and say, hey, this is the vision I have for the future. This is the future I want to create. It doesn't exist yet, right? Like, And if you think there are professions out there that are this, any creative profession, but also the sciences, um, yes. architecture, you're literally dreaming up buildings that have never been made before, and you're calling them into being through actual physical materials. And it's such a useful and powerful skill that I think a lot of people gloss over and it's one that I see in you so oh, deeply. Thanks. So, oh, that's such a compliment only because I've had to live my way into that for a long time. I never thought I was a visioner, a visionary. There we go. Yes, visionary. Words, yeah. Seven weeks. Seven, seven weeks, weeks people. A visionary. <laughs> I never thought I was a visionary, but I was introduced to Octavia Butler's work and she's a black Incredible. science writer. And I am reading a book that Adrienne Marie Brown wrote called Octavia's Brood with different short story writers, but it's all about people of color speaking the future that's not here yet. And that is the work that I'm here to do. And it's mm-hmm. taken me a long time to figure that out, but not that I don't love it, but when I watch a movie or see a show about the past, I, history is important, but there's something about learn from that, but what do you see moving forward that we can't see right now? And that to me is it, you know, Afrofuturism and sci-fi and why Black Panther did so well. It's like we're starting to create futures as people of color that we cannot see. And that hasn't been something I don't think that's been on the mainstream platform. So I'm, I'm really excited about that. 
Oh, you're giving me chills. And you're reminding me of, have you read that essay, How Long Till Black Future Month? No. Have you heard of this? No. Oh my God. What's so I know it's fine. We think we, this is why we talk to each other. We <laughs> have right. resources. So people listening, N.K. Jemsen is a science fiction writer. I think, yeah. Tanya, I'm going to send you these immediately after we get yeah, off that. this call. But she wrote an essay that says, how long till Black Future Month? And she's like, sorry, I'm tired of Black History Month. Like, That's let's right. look forward. We need some creative imagination about like where we're going. That's right. That's right. Which, and it takes some serious guts. And it also hasn't been allowed. Like, it's so radical that I understand why we keep looking in the past, because that's what's been allowed. We're allowed to have Black History Month. We're allowed to remember it with nostalgia about how hard we fought. But it's like, come on, I'm ready for the, yeah, I'm ready for the future. Right, because if you yeah. ask people, and, and whoever out there, if you're listening, you're driving, you're on a walk, wherever you are, if I ask you to conjure up an image when I say the word visionary, Look at what's in your mind when we say that word. Who comes to mind? What do you see? Like we see the white male CEOs, the Christopher Columbuses. Like it's a lot harder to imagine yep. women and people of color because we haven't told those stories collectively and we've absorbed and soaked those into our brain. Absolutely. And it's interesting because I'm in the process of writing a play right now and it's all centered around this idea of Afrofuturism and telling stories and it is centered around my oldest daughter and something that happened to her with her health. But what I had to do was she was diagnosed from, yes, you know, white male centered medical. She wasn't even diagnosed. She came down with a very rare autoimmune virus, but it's undiagnosable and uncurable. And that can do two things. It can throw you into despair. Or what I chose to do was to take, of course, the best medical attention that we have, which is the purpose of the medical profession and all of that. But what I also did was went to the spiritual realm and talked a lot to Joe and to other healers about now that there's no diagnosis, there's nothing to stop me from creating the story of the future for her. Because if a doctor, if a white male was to come in the room and say to me, well, this is the diagnosis and this is what's going to happen. But seeing that nobody knows, it's wide open for me to dream and that's and to vision and to see the future for this little black girl. So that is why I'm creating a piece of theater around this, because I think that's what we have the ability to do, to heal through the future. Like, that's what we got to do. Oh, I am like scribbling that phrase down, heal through the future. Yeah. So there are specific things I, I want to get to in this conversation, talking mm -hmm. about your postpartum recovery. But just before we get there, can you connect a few more of the dots from where we where we left off in terms of transitioning from full-time in Broadway to seeing this path with social yeah. justice work. Can you tell us about So Humanity uh -huh. and So Hum? And tell us a little bit more about the rest of the pieces that are bringing you up to today. Awesome. After that moment of speaking at that event, I started speaking, being asked to speak a bit more. There were a few other opportunities that came from that event that got me into doors with the Center for Constitutional Rights. I partnered with them and did readings from people from solitary confinement. I just did all these different events where they were, I was using my artistic voice or my creative voice and expression to tell these stories of different people of color and marginalized communities. And then I started to think like, how would this look like if it was 
me or if I started a company or an organization or something around this work that I'm doing. So there was like a, a hub. I wasn't just doing random projects all over the place. And so Soham has been a mantra in the yoga philosophy or in the Hindu tradition, which means I am that I am. I also connect to it because of my Christian roots. And I've always been drawn to the story of Moses. And when Moses in the burning bush and Moses says to God, who do I say sent me to the Israelites? And God said, tell them I am sent you. I am that I am. And so I think that this phrase, I am that I am connects all of humanity through religions, beliefs in nature in anything, right? So then I thought, so hum, so hum, so so humanity. And so that's how So Humanity was birthed. And it started as a conversation series. I was looking at other artists who were speaking out bravely about things they're passionate about, about spirituality, justice, art, and started it as not a podcast, but I was just doing interviews and blogging about it. And then from mm-hmm. there, partnerships started to happen where, oh, do you want to do this project, this or that? And so it morphed into kind of like a blog and that. And then I met a mom at my daughter's nursery school who worked in the field of systems change or systems innovation. And she was very drawn to the work that I did. And I was like, why? I'm like a dancer. Like, I don't understand how that, it just seems so heady to me, you know? And she said, well, choreography is at the heart of systems change. And I said, how? She said, well, we're creating movements and Mm. that's what you do. And if, if more systems thinkers could get out of their head and think like dancers or think like a choreographer, you're doing this whole field a huge service. And I was like, whoa. So I said, we're going to go Downloading it into the body. Yep. And so I asked her, do, you, do I need to go to school for this? And she was like, no, teach me everything you know. I'll teach you everything I know. We'll cope here. This is the way of the future. And so we hosted an event right after the election, the 2016 election, which everyone has their story of what happened to their life before and after that. And it was a huge hit of bringing together systems innovators and all of these, you know, really incredible thought leaders together with artists and activists and kind of very embodied people in one room and having these really interesting conversations around art and justice and the future. And from there, that also linked into what I did with So Humanity. So I've worked with different organizations around being embodied, like a whole systems, a group of accountants where they feel like their field is becoming a little bit obsolete or extinct and how to bring it into the body to find more wisdom through yoga retreats, through workshops with the Jewish Community Center. So it's been this link of systems innovation, systems change, yoga, dance, <laughs> and conversations. And that is the field of, you know, you kind of kind of explore on my site, but the work that, that I've been doing. Mm, thank you for all of this. I I love hearing the like the arc and the story and the breadth because no one has a boring answer for me. <laughs> when we start digging in and we look at like all the different facets of work and creativity and careers, it's amazing. I'm going to take us left or right, sideways cool. um, for a minute. Uh, no, for many minutes because I want to talk to you now about your parenting journey, in particular, the decisions you made around your care with your second child. Because you reached out to me and you told me that you made some really conscious, deliberate choices about what you wanted your caretaking journey to look like during pregnancy and postpartum with your second child. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So if I go back to my birth experience with my first child, I had a pretty traumatic experience with my care provider 
where, you know, I wanted to have, I had a birth plan, which a lot of people have a birth plan that doesn't go their way. And I'm okay with that if it's for medical reasons. But what ended up happening and what I experienced was looking on it later, uh, it was a black woman coming into a hospital setting, saying what she wants with her body and the entire system, like just attacking me, <laughs> which what it felt like, like if I wanted to be in the water, get on, get in the bed. If I wanted to do this, do this you know, threatening me, telling me, I do not care about your baby. You need to do this. And at the time I thought I was second guessing myself. I just kept thinking like, maybe they know better than me, but I just feel like I know my body. And my, my doula kept saying to me, what you're doing is right. You know what you're doing. But I spent my whole, the whole labor at the hospital. I mean, I, I labored at home with my first for 12 hours, which was juicy and amazing and hard, but I felt so empowered and then when I got to the hospital, the, the remaining eight hours were incredibly disempowering. And, I, you know, my doctor had asked me, what's my biggest fear? And I said, you know, four generations back on my mother's side, no woman has given a vaginal birth. They've all had C-sections. And the, the story in my family is we don't have natural births. We don't have vaginal births. And of course, me being who I am, I'm like, I don't believe that. I don't believe my body can be pregnant and can't at least even try and so I told the doctor this story and right at 10 centimeters and before I'm about to push, she said, you have three pushes or you're going to have a C-section. And she threatened me with my biggest fear. And I pushed for dear life and I tore almost four de fourth degree tear. And it just was terrible. I had my vaginal birth, but it came with a lot of trauma to my body and just to myself, my mind. And I think that might've been why we waited so long. Who knows? But you know, it was six years between the two. And the first time I was that crazy, ambitious, career-driven, and I had had this whole shift. And at this point now, I'd started So Humanity for the past two years. And I just thought I need to take a little bit more, not control, but I need to feel like I'm in the driver's seat of this situation this time. I'd learned a lot more about my body. I'd healed a lot more through my body. I'd processed a lot of trauma. So there's a few things I did. First, I knew that I wanted to have a home birth. I also knew that I wanted to have a woman of color deliver the baby, not just for like, oh, just as a stance, but also practical. The infant mortality rate and maternal mortality rate is way higher among women of color. And I know that women of color midwives are like going to Albany, going to Congress. They're actually lobbying and speaking out against this. And I wanted my money to go to them. I wanted my money to go towards their efforts. I also know that they take a lot of women with Medicaid so that they can support minority communities as well. So there was like reasons that why I wanted to support a woman of color more than just my ideas, but also that's where I wanted my insurance money to go. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. uh, so there was that choice. There was also a choice to do six weeks of therapy leading up to the birth just knowing how, what trauma I'd gone through before. And again, I wanted this to be from a woman of color. So a beautiful Muslim woman was my therapist. I had this woman of color who was incredible, Takiya Ballard as my midwife. And then even from then, when I was choosing the midwife, I had had a doula the first time who was incredible. And she had given me the name of Takiya as a midwife, like she would be perfect for you, but I still wanted to be in the driver's seat. So I interviewed maybe seven or eight different women of color midwives. I created a whole Google spreadsheet with like <laughs> insurance. They take their billers information, everything about them so that I could 
pass it on to other women. Like I just was really passionate about women feeling like they were in control or in charge of their bodies during this experience. And so then that was the therapist, the midwife, also my postpartum doula, a woman of color. So I've chose to have these women of color be my support. And the reason I did, because I wanted to see if I would feel different. I wanted to see just as like almost like my own little social experiment, what would happen if my care was all from women who either have had similar experiences to me or could relate to what I was saying when I said it to them? How was it? How did it go? Amazing. (laughs) I mean, so the biggest takeaway, which is really simple, but also really profound, which I think most profound things are, from almost all of them, from my massage therapist to my acupuncturist to like all the other ones I listed, the overriding sense that I got from all of them under their care was, you've got this, you're strong and you can do this. I know that sounds so simple, but that is not, for the most part, the experience that I have with wellness care from people who are not of color. Hmm. And it's not that you don't have this and you're not okay, but it's almost like, try this. What about this? What do you think about this? It's always a fix. And it's always done with total care and concern, but it, there's always advice attached. Or the, And I was always fascinated. I mean, this came up in my daughter's nursery school of how we were doing this parent group and reading all these parenting books. And luckily this director was incredible. She said to me, I realized every single parenting book and advice book that we're reading are from white women. So I'm a black woman learning how to raise my kid only from a white woman's perspective. And maybe a black mother would have a different experience or a different history or something different to contribute. And I realized that I needed that. I needed a black woman's perspective on my care. And the difference was, it was just very simple. And it was very, you've got it all in you. You can do it. And I was just like, I just hadn't heard that a lot in my life. It's so interesting. The idea, it's almost like benevolent advice, the way that there's benevolent sexism. You know, people are well-meaning. There's no harm intended, but it's not always about intention. That's right. And the presumption when you offer someone advice is that you know better than them. And so they're at a default down position. That's right. That's yeah. exactly right. And, it ha- and now after this experience, I'm seeing it all the time, but I can see it with compassion and mm-hmm. I can see it and choose not to take it. And I was wondering why I would leave situations where I would doubt myself, right? In that first moment with that first doctor, who, by the way, was a woman of color. So I want to also say this isn't like black, white. She was a black woman, my first OB, but who was in an institutionalized system. So even though she was black, I, she still treated me terribly. And this, the crazy thing is, is the woman who referred her to me, the friend who referred her to me was a white woman and she treated her with the utmost of respect. Mm. And so this is why it's so subtle and it's so insidious and it's so systemic because it's not white people doing things to black people. It's all how we all are like bamboozled in this whole system. <laughs> Love that word, bamboozled. Yeah. Right, it's not conscious. It's not like someone walks no. into a room and says, well, because no. of X, Y, and Z, this is what I'm going to do. Exactly. But the patriarchy, mm-hmm. the words paternal, patronizing, right? They have similar yeah. roots. The yeah. idea of a father figure that knows best and is telling us what to do because we are dumber or less educated or don't know or can't possibly like have learned it all. It's astounding. I mean, and then you also did something really interesting, which is bring people into your center, your home. Yeah. So 
our postpartum doula, a, a friend and amazing woman who, again, yeah, came into our home and cared and had comp- like it was not only picking up my daughter from school to helping prepare a meal to cleaning up the house or doing laundry to having sitting and just talking to me and letting me cry. Like, yeah, I just had realized how even white centered my care and my experience had been and how I needed to change that narrative for myself. I just needed to, to change it up. I needed to hear other stories or other perspectives from other people. And I think the reason why I wanted to talk to you about this is I think it's so easily these kind of stories would be shared within black communities solely, right? Like you tell your black friends, go hire this black midwife and we can support black people. And I think for me and my work, I've always been a bridge builder. I've always been someone who was in different groups of people that don't look like me. I, you know, I don't like to only be in one certain type of group, but I think it's really important for everyone to support women of color and put their money where their beliefs are, because it's important for all. We all can benefit from having a black woman taking care of us in a certain way or helping them with their entrepreneurial vision. Or, you know, I just think it's, I think it's important. Paying them. Pay them. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And paying them. And paying Um, them well. (laughs) This is, this is, I will, I've spoken about this on the podcast before, but this is one of the reasons listeners, why I'm such an advocate for buying physical books. And I go to the movies when the leads don't look like the average lead. Even if I won't go to the show, I'll buy a ticket to Black Panther or another show where there's a woman lead because I want more shows to exist like that. And so those, they can be small. You don't have to leave your house, but you can support the work of people whose voices have been oppressed and marginalized for centuries. So I want to ask if it's okay with you and let me know if this is too much. I want to ask you if you had any backup plans. Like, did you also prepare for what if the home birth wasn't going to turn out and you needed to go to a hospital? What did that look like? Yeah. Perfect question because we did need a backup plan. Um, Let's see. I went to 42 weeks and the only backup plan we had really talked about with the midwife was which hospitals were closer for if we needed a transfer mid labor while we were at home. With my first, I went into labor totally naturally at home. So we just figured my body would follow suit the second time. But at 42, almost 42 plus weeks, I had to go into the hospital to get a non-stress test just to make sure the baby was okay in there and moving and the fluid levels were okay. And my fluid was borderline low in the placenta. And so the midwife gave us this option. Um, We had tried everything, tinctures and membrane sweep and sex, literally everything you're supposed to do to get this baby out. My midwife says, you get the baby out the same way you get the baby in. Um, (laughs) But um, anyway. Hey, pregnant sex can be great. It can. Hello. Yes. So keep keep uh, going. She said to us, so here's your options. You have 48 hours for this non-stress test. It expires in 48 hours. If it does, you have to go back into the hospital, do it again. And if it comes back low, they will admit you right away. And if they admit you right away, your cho- your chances of that leading to cesarean section is pretty high. Or we can go to Brooklyn. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like we live all the way uptown. I was going to have this perfect home birth and now I'm going to Brooklyn. So, but I started to count the kicks in the middle of the night and I wasn't sleeping. And 
I just started to worry a little bit and I thought, I don't think this is worth it. I need to trust my intuition. And so we just said, let's do it. So we went to Woodhull Hospital, which is in Bedford-Stuyvesant in Brooklyn. It's a public health hospital. We ended up taking the A train all the way there because there was tr- too much traffic. I'm uh, 42 weeks pregnant. 42 weeks pregnant on the A train. I'm pissed. Like, I'm just like, please tell oh. me someone gave you a seat. Yes, we had a seat. God, okay. It was fine. We got Jamaican patties on the way to the hospital. I mean, it was okay. But we get there and the midwives were incredible. I think we had almost the entire labor and delivery floor. Midwives run the entire floor. This gorgeous black woman is the head of midwifery there. Most of the nurses in the care are women of color. I'm kind of like, whoa, this is like, this. maybe this is what I needed. I don't know. And they were so kind. Everything they did, they asked before they did it. They were able to naturally induce me with the balloon, which hurts like hell, but it worked. And I went into labor and... Six hours later, she was born with a team of midwives, you know, surrounding me, cheering me on. I had music playing the whole time. I mean, it was, again, hard, but beautiful. And I was in the driver's seat of that experience the entire time. And I just think it, I, the vision that I have is we had one kind of scary moment, which also shows us why you need to listen to your body and listen to your baby. And the mom does know how to do that is her heart rate dropped for more than a minute, about four or five centimeters. And they had to internally monitor and break my water. And I just remember all the midwives hovering over my bed and they just were like, you got this. You're okay. You got it. You're good. Yep. Everything's good. And just how important that was for me, for my healing to have the total opposite experience. And it also made me a crazy advocate for New York City public hospitals And the kind of care and the women who are running these floors, for the most part, a lot of them are women of color who are doing this work in neighborhoods that are very underserved. So yeah, I think it was exactly as it it should be. And our backup plan was the perfect plan. So yeah. Wow. I am getting chills now listening to you speak of this because birth is so many things. It's so chaotic. Yeah. And it's, it's like the after pregnancy, right? It's the next thing that can be so like, good luck. This is out of your control experience and having the foresight to be able to say, I need people around me that have this posture, that have this attitude that will say these things to me. That's hard. And I think it requires a deep level of self-awareness too. I think it does. I think it does because it's so easy to second guess. And it's so easy, especially in the context of the medical field is to be like, well, they went to school for years and years. They know instead of I've lived in this body all these years. I know like, and it's not about, I know versus, you know, like what I noticed that they modeled there at Woodhall was there were OBs working when I, we had that scary moment, the OBs were there in a second and the midwives were working with them and they were working together. It's that whole idea also of like above and below or, you know, spiritual and embodied. It's like, it's the same. It's, working together, you know, and I did see that being modeled for sure. We had a guest on the show. Her name's Lisa Hendrickson Jack, and she is the author of a book called The Fifth Vital Sign. Hmm. It's all about charting your menstrual cycle as one of the vital signs in your physical wellness, because the four vital signs are, you know, fine for men, but women have this whole database, if you will, of information that it's routinely ignored. And 
she is saying something very similar to what you just said, which is why I'm bringing it up. Uh, she said, there are two experts in the room. The doctor has expertise in the field, but you are the expert of your body. That's right. It's the, like we both sit on the same side of the table looking together at the plans as opposed to being antagonistic on opposite side of the table, trying to like fight for control. And, you know, that makes me think of my eldest daughter when she was in the hospital for this autoimmune virus, the doctors were <laughs> confused more than anything that we raised her to be very conscious of her body and to know her body. And they would talk to us over her about her, how she's doing. And even in the condition she was in, she would say, you know, what is a reflex? Why are you doing that? Why are you putting that in my arm? What is it giving me? She would ask, literally ask the doctors these questions. And they were like looking at her like, what is this five-year-old doing asking me these? But that's what it is. It's like, she already knows we have to work together here. Like you don't get to just put a needle in my arm and assume that I'm going to just take it. Like, Yes. Like, what is it? Yes. <laughs> Tell me what it is. and what. Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, so many thoughts on this. Is there anything else that you wanted to share that I didn't ask you about yet? I think it's just, this piece at the end, it's like right now, as I'm weaving all of this, my birth and motherhood and the trauma of my eldest daughter and what she'd gone through, with it all funneling through art and creativity for me, which I do think is so humanity, I think it's about having these exact conversations more, collaborating more. Like, I feel like for me, even knowing about that, the fifth vital sign, like I want to connect more with people in the medical profession around telling these stories through art and having these conversations. So I just think, I, I don't know what this is, if it's a statement or a comment, I just say more collaboration and collaborations, particularly of things that are perceived to be opposites. And so for me, it's more conversations with people in the medical field or in health in general and how we can bring that to a more embodied place. That's kind of my mission moving forward. Where can people find out more about you and the work you do? Where should they go? Social media wise, website yeah. wise, all of those things. Cool. So Instagram, you can find me at so humanity, all one word. And then website is the same, sohumanity.com. I think those are the two probably best places. I am also the only me if you Google me. <laughs> I, I feel like I'm one of those people where I can actually say, Google me, because you, you will find out a lot about me if you Google me. <laughs> I'm the only Tanya Bro Torres on the internet. I'd say those places, but definitely Instagram, I, I do love. I, I love telling stories. And I love how that platform is available to do that. And conscious social media consumption. Mm -hmm. I'm, really, I'm really big about it and also output. And I know you are too. So yeah, that's a great place. And then sohumanity.com, you can kind of troll around and see and read and watch some of the stuff that I've been doing. Yes. Yes. Conscious by necessity. Otherwise, yeah. the depths of my darkness will take oh, me into my God. scroll oh. holes. I don't need yeah. to be in. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. <laughs> it's a okay. practice. <laughs> always yeah oh this has been so great thank you for taking the time and for doing it while your little one is so still so little yeah thank you I, I I mean I feel like I wouldn't do this for anything else but I find it so important so yeah thank you 
And that's it. That is a wrap, everyone. Thank you so much to each of these women for joining us on today's episode. They have given you a sneak peek inside the Wise Women's Council and the types of conversations that we have as parents and entrepreneurs navigating this messy world of work and parenting. If you are interested in finding out more about the Wise Women's Council for next year, please go to startuppregnant.com slash WWC. That stands for Wise Women's Council. We'll have the link in the show notes and you can also find it in the main menu on our website. The Wise Women's Council next year will have three different tiers. So you can access the community at three different in three different ways. The first way, you can join the community for the social space and for the monthly calls. The second way, you can join a small group coaching program to go deeper with a group of six to eight women. And the third way, you can work one-on-one directly with me and we will have one-on-one private calls to really unpack and unlock big moves in your life or in your business. So check it out. There's three different access points next year. We haven't ever offered it this way before, so we're really thrilled to see what y'all think. Go check out startuppregnant.com slash WWC for the Wise Women's Council and do apply by January 20th for early bird pricing. The prices will go up if your application is not in by the 20th. I hope to see many, many of you applying and here is to an amazing 2020. Hey everyone, just a heads up and a reminder, if you want to listen to our long form Ask Me Anything sessions, they are 30, 45, and sometimes 60 minutes in length, and they we go deep into questions that people have. If you want me to look at your business, you want me to comment on your marketing plan, or you have a question about parenting, pregnancy, or anything in between, we are taking listener questions and I answer them in a monthly Ask Me Anything fireside chat. It's available only to our Patreon supporters. So if you back us at the $7 a month level, you get access to this private podcast. You can get access to all of the past episodes, which is pretty cool. So if you're missing the podcast while we're on our hiatus and you want to take a listen in to these Ask Me Anything episodes, go over to Patreon and become a monthly backer at the $7 per month level and you'll get access to all of the future episodes, as well as all of the past episodes. Keep in mind that you are also supporting the work of Startup Pregnant and our growth in these early days, and that matters a ton. Every dollar helps and counts, and we appreciate so much and are grateful for your support. Patreon.com slash Startup Pregnant will take you right there. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Did I spell that right? Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Yes. Patreon.com slash Startup Pregnant will take you there. The link will be right here in the show notes. You can go straight there. $7 a month and you get access to this entirely exclusive Patreon only podcast. Thanks so much, everyone, for listening. And, you know, I always say this and I mean it. Leave us a review on iTunes if you like our show. It takes a few seconds and it really does help us a lot. If you want more of what we're talking about, go over to startuppregnant.com and get on our email list. We send out a weekly newsletter with time-saving tips for parents and entrepreneurs. And I always include a weekly gadget or tool or something awesome that we've stumbled upon to help make your life just a little bit easier. 
And as always, you can reach out to us at hello at startuppregnant.com. We love hearing from you.